Great. Good morning. Well, first mistake, I forgot to turn on my mic. I was supposed to do that earlier. But uh, hey, uh, my name is Anthony Kaufman. I'm an elder here at Trinity, and um, this is my very first sermon that I've ever preached in my entire life. So uh, if I was you, I would be wondering why. Why am I up here? You know, why, why am I doing this? Why am I subjecting you to my rookie preaching? And that's, that's a great question. So let me tell you, let me tell you the story. So um, a while back, Pastor Chris uh, approached me and he said, Anthony, I really think you should preach. And I said, absolutely not. No way. I'm uh, not going to do it. Um, and so then, uh, a little bit later, he came to me and said, uh, Anthony, I'm going to be out of town. Would you consider preaching? I'm like, all right, all right, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, and then, in a strange turn of events, uh, when it was too late for me to back out, uh, Chris realized that he was going to be here. Um, and so, uh, just watch the guy is all I'm saying, you know. Uh, <laughs> Keep, keep an eye on him. He'll, he'll trick you into preaching too. So, uh, you know, just, uh, just watch him. No, but seriously, um, uh, we're doing this uh, series on relationships uh, called Can You Relate? Did I get it right, Chris? Is that right? Okay, good. Uh, can You Relate on Relationships? And, and Chris asked me to do uh, parent-child relationships, which is uh, something that I'm, something I'm, I'm really passionate about. So, uh, I'm nervous, but excited to uh, tell you about what God's been, uh, you know, teaching me about that topic, and uh, it's been impactful for me, so I hope it is for you too. So uh, before I get into that, I wanted to give you a little bit of my background. Uh, first of all, I am a uh, son to Bob and Barbara Kaufman. They live in Albany, Oregon. Uh, they've been married for 42 years, I think. I didn't have actually ask them. I did the math. So mom and dad, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry I got your... Uh, anniversary wrong, but um, uh, 42 years-ish, and uh, the great, uh, fantastic parents, and uh, uh, I am a husband to Emily Kaufman. She uh, and I have been married for 18 years, and we have six children together. See, six. You know, you have to use two hands. It's a lot. A lot of children. So, um, and look, I bet you, you wouldn't know it to look at us now, but uh, there was a time when Em and I were relatively certain that we weren't going to have any children. We just thought, you know, when we first got married, we're just like, you know, uh, we're not going to do it. And uh, the reason, you know, maybe the reasons were somewhat complicated, but definitely one of them was that we had, uh, we had been to Walmart. Have you guys ever done this? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know about you, but I've been down there and I've observed the parent-child relationships that go on there. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's, look, it's a jungle down there. Uh, there are, uh, you know, there are parents being cranky with their kids. There are kids disrespecting their parents. And, um, you know, that's just the start of it. You know, kids throwing fits that they, uh, their parents are trying to buy them the off-brand of Fruit Loops, you know? You guys have, you guys have seen it down there. It's, it's wild stuff. So, uh, Em and I, we just took a look at that, and we're just like, you know what? Uh, you know, no, I don't think so. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna do it. Um, but in reality, I think it was a little bit more than that. You know, we. Uh, I think we knew that parenting had just maybe a little bit more in store for us than uh, some awkward situations in the Walmart checkout line. See, uh, when God gives you kids, uh, He not only entrusts you with their lives but their discipleship as well. And, um, you know, uh, 
that, that, seemed, that seemed like a tall order for us. So, look, I, I came up with an analogy for this just this Friday. Now, I'm sure in seminary, they teach you never trust an analogy that comes to you on the Friday before you're going to preach on Sunday. But see, never been to seminary, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to launch into it. And you guys can, you guys can see what you think. So, um, I recently uh, saw a preview for a movie where they explored the idea, what would happen if Superman was evil, okay? What would happen if he was a bad dude? And um, uh, I, haven't, I haven't watched the movie, but based on the preview and the small amount of internet research I've done, it doesn't look like it turns out very well for the people of Smallville, you know, in that scenario. See, Superman, he's just super powerful. You know, he's got the, the heat vision, the icy breath, the, uh, the super strength, uh, he's indestructible almost and can, uh, you know, can fly. So if Superman has all this power and he's bad, you know, it's a really bad situation. Well, but, you know, we all know Superman is a good guy and he fights crime and saves Lois Lane and the world many times over. And so his power in the hands of a good man is good. Well, I think... Parenting, as I was reflecting on this, in some ways, parent-child relationships, we, we have a lot of power in those. Um, as parents, we have a lot of power, and I'd like to argue that as children, even, we have a lot of power in those relationships. See, I mean, I, I think you have all, uh, you know, we, we all have the examples of, uh, I, I think, kind of both sides of the coin. You know, there's the, uh, the parents who have just nurtured their children, discipled their children, and just really set their children up uh, for success. Um, you know, uh, just set them up as workers in God's kingdom. And uh, then unfortunately, we've all seen the contrast of that, haven't we? You know, there's the, the parents, uh, you know, who've uh, gone the, the, the opposite way. And, uh, you know, their, their kids just have lasting, lasting scars throughout their entire lives from that. And but it's, it's not just that. I, I think it's, uh, as, as, a, as a child, you also have great power in your relationship with your parents. Um, you know, I was just talking to a dad recently, and, you know, there was some stuff going on in his life. It was, uh, there was many areas of his life that, that things weren't going very well. Um, but he was talking to me and saying, you know, just my, my kids are such a bright spot right now. You know, they're, they're just such a blessing to me. I, I watch them serving God on their own and uh, just really, um, you know, making, making their faith their own. And, uh, you know, now I, get to, now I get to watch them do that. And it's just such a blessing to me as a father. And, uh, you know, also we've, we've all seen the contrast where kids can just unfortunately be, you know, a lifelong sorrow to their parents. So, We've got power, and to mix my superhero metaphors a little bit, with great power comes great responsibility, right? And so, look, young Emily and Anthony looked at that. You know, Anthony didn't understand the Superman analogy, because like I said, that just came to me. But uh, we, uh, we looked at that, and we're just like, you know, we're good. We're, we're not going to do it. We're just going to uh, uh, gonna go on vacation and uh, go to the park and come home late in the evening and cook uh, elaborate, impractical, non-kid-friendly dinners whose ingredients we've bought just immediately prior, you know? And we'll just, we'll just do that. Uh, 
But as, as God has the tendency to do, uh, he, he started to change our hearts. And uh, so we held out to the ripe old age of 25, okay? So, and, and uh, we got pregnant. And, um, but I, I vowed to succeed, you know, where the people of Walmart had failed. I, I would succeed, all right? And so, uh, but I was, I was still super nervous about the, the whole fatherhood thing. And um, I was... Uh, there's a, a good friend of mine who uh, has nine kids now. I mean, the, look, that's, that's a bunch. Nine children. He's a wonderful father. And at the time, he had three kids, and they were pregnant with their fourth when we were pregnant with our first. And so this, uh, this, is, uh, this is just really etched in my memory here. So we were, we were at Hua's Mongolian Barbecue, all right? We were at Hua's, and uh, this is just so vivid for me. He's over, you know, loading up his bowl on, on meat. And I'm over by the noodles, and I'm trying to cram a large portion of noodles into a medium-sized bowl. You know, you guys, you guys have been to Huas. You know how this works. Okay, so we're talking fatherhood while we're doing this. And he said, said to me, um, you know, nothing compares to just looking down at your child for the first time, holding him in your arms, and just experiencing that unconditional love. And I thought, okay, you know, all right. Uh, I was feeling nervous about this, but, you know, armed with unconditional love, maybe it's going to be okay. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe I can do this. And so the day came. Uh, my son William was born. Uh, the doctor handed him to me. And I looked down at him. I'm like, okay, here it comes. All right. Here it goes. All right. So I look at him. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, it, had been a, it had been a long day. <laughs> it, it, it had been a long night, really. I mean, actually, so I, you know, <clears throat> looked down at him and, uh, you know, <clears throat> looked down at him and uh, I wasn't feeling it. So, you know, what was I supposed to do? Uh, thing, things, things were off to a rocky Start And so that is the question that I would like to take up today. Not that specific question, because I think that may be just specific to me. But uh, the question, what do you do when you know the ideal that God has for parent-child relationships? And you find yourself with a reality that isn't matching up with that. You know, like I said, God gave us great power in these relationships, great responsibility. And so sometimes it feel, it, it's felt like in my own life that that kind of chasm between reality and the ideal is just, it's just an impossible situation to get there. And uh, so to answer that question, I would like to throw you a bit of a curveball. It's my first sermon, you know, so I'd like to throw you off a little bit. And I'd like to turn to the book of Nehemiah. And look, I know what you're thinking. Uh, you've read Nehemiah, and it has nothing to do with parenting. That's a fair point. Uh, but, uh, you know, all, all of Scripture, I think, has principles to uh, teach us about many different situations. And the fact is that the book of Nehemiah, uh, in it, Nehemiah is faced with an impossible situation, and which, we'll, which we'll read about. And uh, it's, the book is about how God uses him to change that impossible situation, to bridge the gap between ideal 
or I'm sorry, reality and ideal. So um, let's, uh, let's get into it. I'll have you turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read chapters 1 through 4. Okay. Give you just a second to get there. I'm there right now. All right. Bookmark my Bible ahead of time. That's a pro tip. All right. So Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So, first, I want to give you just a little bit of background here. So, uh, Jerusalem fell to Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And most of the Jewish people were carried off as exiles. Then uh, Persia conquered Babylon in 539 under the rule of Cyrus the Great. Now, 20 years later, Cyrus the Great allowed some Jewish exiles to return to the homeland. So there were some Jewish uh, people who were there to begin with. Some got to return under Cyrus. And uh, so this is, this is where Nehemiah comes in. So um, his brother had been to Jerusalem, and unlike today, you know, Han and I wasn't taking selfies in front of the, you know, the broken down walls and burned gates. So Nehemiah didn't know what was going on until he got back. And, um, uh, you know, this being able to return to the promised land was the Jewish hope for the future at that time. They were living as exiles in a foreign land. Um, They wanted to be able to go back to the promised land. And so uh, when his brother returns and tells him how that's going, you know, that really shakes Nehemiah's vision for the future. And, and so that's, that's Nehemiah's impossible situation. You know, he is in exile with, um, you know, no power, living in a foreign land. And, uh, but, but yet he knows that, uh, you know, God has promised that they would be able to return to that land. And so, uh, so what does he do? Uh, well, first of all, he prays fervently. He mourns, fasts, and prays for days. So that's our first principle. When you're faced with an impossible situation in your relationships with your parents or your children, pray fervently. So when you realize, like I did, that you don't have what it takes to raise your children, uh, to disciple your children to adulthood, when you realize that you don't know how to navigate your relationship with your adult children, when you find out that your child has fallen away from the Lord, you know, cry out to God, pray fervently. Mourn, fast, and pray. So I, w- I admit, when I was thinking about this first principle, um, I felt a little sheepish about it. I was like, you know, I'm going to stand up here and tell these people, okay, well, what should you do? You should pray. Well, everybody, everybody knows that already. That's not, that's not new information for any of us. Um, but as I was thinking about it, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, was, I was wondering, well, why, why don't I do it more often, you know, when... I'm faced with what seems like an impossible situation. Why do, why do I prefer to fret about it and try to figure it out in my own mind? And, 
you know, really wrestle with it. Why am I so reluctant to go to God in prayer about it? Well, as I was thinking about it, uh, I I don't pretend to have the whole answer, but I think think there are two pieces, at least. So uh, one of them, I, I think, is it's in part enlightened modern culture, and I think it's one part human nature. So uh, in his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller notes how in the 18th century Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant and other thinkers divided the, world's, the world into two spheres. You had kind of the ethereal uh, sphere of feelings and personal experience and opinion, and then you had the concrete sphere of truth and facts. And so religion and prayer was considered to be in this first sphere, and real things like science and the physical world, we're in the second. And so this concept is called secularism, and really it's pervaded our culture in, any way, in every way. And so I think us just being steeped in that, steeped in this culture, uh, you know, we think of like, well, I could pray, or I could actually do something about it. And so I think, I think that thinking is one reason why we don't go to God in prayer. Uh, second, failing to pray is not necessarily a new problem. Like, how many times while reading through the Old Testament do you just kind of want to shake the prayerless main character? You know, you're just like, you idiot. Don't tell him she's your sister. Talk to God about it. I mean, gosh. Or, uh, you know, look, God just parted the Red Sea for you. And you're complaining about not having food and water. Uh, So, I, I don't think, even though I think modern culture is partially to blame, I don't think it's necessarily a new problem. But but look, here's, here's the thing. Even though we may be reluctant sometimes to go to prayer, even though I personally may try lots of other things before I kind of give up and get there, um, the truth is God, God is right there. He wants to, you know, he, he wants us to have the ideal in our parent-child relationships. And so, uh, so pray fervently about it. Uh, cry out to him when... Uh, you feel like you're faced with an impossible situation. So, uh, let's read on and see what happens next because Nehemiah's prayer is is the key to everything that happens next in the book. So, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 4. I'm going to kind of take a fly over Nehemiah. It's going to be just kind of a bird's eye view of it, so to speak. Uh, Feel free to read it yourself. It's a great... uh, Great read. It's been a blessing for me to read over these past uh, few weeks. So, um, Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 4. So, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not yet been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? So that's, that's the next principle. I'd like us to learn from Nehemiah. When you've been fervently praying, watch to see what God's going to do and take an opportunity when he gives it. Now, that's not too complicated, uh, but let's notice a few things about the opportunity that God gave Nehemiah. It doesn't mean that if you've been fervently praying in your parent-child relationships that 
the opportunity God's going to give you is going to be exactly the same. But I, I, think, it, I think it helps to kind of analyze the opportunity he gave Nehemiah. So if in case uh, the opportunity God gives you is somewhat similar, um, it won't maybe be as surprising. So uh, first of all, I want us to notice that when Nehemiah's brother comes back from Jerusalem, that's in the month of Kislev, which is our month of November, roughly. Uh, and when Nehemiah gets this opportunity with the king, that's in the month of ne- ne- uh, Nisan, which is our March. So Nehemiah has been waiting for four months. I mean, in our Bibles, it's, man, back to back, boom. Nehemiah prays, gets an opportunity. But this, four months have passed, and likely Nehemiah has been uh, you know, bringing his request before God the whole time. And so uh, as we're working this template, as we're praying fervently, uh, watching for opportunities, don't, uh, don't be surprised if God makes you wait. And I don't know about you, but God pretty much always makes me wait. And it's almost always way longer than I'm personally comfortable with. So uh, don't, don't be surprised if God does that for you as well. Second, I'd like us to notice uh, that God gives Nehemiah an opportunity, but it's one that takes a bunch of courage on his part. So Nehemiah is going to go ask a dictator whose nation occupies his land if he can go militarily fortify that land. You know, bit of a tough, tough ask. So when God does something, don't be surprised if the opportunity he gives you isn't just kind of a, you know, a shoe-in. Uh, it, maybe it's going to require uh, a fair bit of bravery on your part, and like it did Nehemiah's. Now, before we move on, I'd like to point out one thing that's been really helpful in my life, uh, watching to see what God's going to do. And that is uh, writing down what I'm praying for. Uh, that's, that, for some reason, that's super helpful to me. I, I have these prayer index cards, one for each member of my family, growth group, and others. And I've written down uh, spe- specific things that I'm praying for each of them. And uh, it's just such an amazing experience when... Uh, something happens, and you're like, "Oh, look! I've, uh, it's it's you know, look! I've got it written down right here." You know, I don't know. There's there's just a concreteness about it. Uh, I think sometimes I have a, the tendency to want to just uh, uh, you know dismiss away what God's doing. Well, that could have happened anyway. But it's harder to do when you look. It's written right there. I've been praying for this for a long time. So uh, that's something that's helpful for me. Maybe it could be for you too. Um, so. To review, Nehemiah prayed fervently. He was ready when God gave him, gave him, gave him an opportunity. So let's see what happens next. So uh, the king grants Nehemiah's request, uh, allows him to go to Jerusalem uh, to work on the wall there. And uh, so Nehemiah goes, he talks to the people, and they immediately start rebuilding the walls and immediately run into trouble. So let's uh, read Nehemiah 4. 7 through 12. Okay. So, uh, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble 
that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So, uh, look, Nehemiah, you know, gets this amazing opportunity. He goes and, uh, you know, look, it's, it's not going well. He's got trouble from outside. He's got trouble from within. Uh, you know, and I don't, I don't know about you, but this seems somewhat familiar to me. You know, I, sometimes I feel like God's given me like an amazing opportunity in my family. And, uh, you know, then I just run into barrier after barrier. And, uh, you know, it's easy for me at that point to be like, well, you know, maybe I kind of blew this opportunity from God out of proportion. You know, if I, uh, if it really was that way, things would be, seem like they'd be going a lot easier for me. Uh, it's easy to, at that point, just kind of want to pack it in and give up. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if I was Nehemiah, it would have been pretty easy to get discouraged, pack up, head back to Susa, serve some wine to the king. Uh, pretty, pretty good gig. Uh, definitely a lot easier than what he's doing right now. Uh, but let's read how Nehemiah handles it instead. Nehemiah 4, just the next verse, 13 through 21. So, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand, and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. So, what does Nehemiah do? Uh, first of all, he doesn't give up. And he gets creative with his problem. So, that's principle number three that I'd like us to learn. Uh, when the going gets tough, press on and don't give up. Instead, feel free to use your gifts that God gave you and, and get creative. Uh, look, do you think that a healthy relationship with your mother is going to be easy? No. She's really hard to get along with. In fact, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to start carrying your sword when you go see her. Uh, I mean, do you think that uh, it's going to be easy to raise children who love and follow God? No. It's going to be, it's going to be super difficult. You're going to have to put your back into it. And there are going to be times when you're going to have to fight for every inch of ground. Um, and so, uh, 
Nehemiah, that, that's what he does. He uh, doesn't give up, and he gets creative. So I'd like to read one more passage in Nehemiah. It's just a simple verse. Chapter 6, verse 15. I'm just going to read it here. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So God gave Nehemiah success in his impossible task because I believe he prayed fervently. He took the opportunities that God gave him and kept at it when the going get, got tough. But here's, here's the big idea that I want you to remember. Uh, Nehemiah trusted God with his impossible situation. And everything else followed from that, everything else that happened. So Nehemiah trusted God, and that allowed him, that enabled him to pray, uh, pray about the situation when we know sometimes we're reluctant to do that. Uh, It enabled Nehemiah to be watching for opportunities that God gave him, have the courage to take those opportunities when they came. And it enabled him to... Uh, you know, just put his back into it when the going got tough, you know, not give up. And uh, in, in verse 6-9, it said, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So ultimately, Nehemiah trusted God. So here's the question I'd like us to think about. Uh, do you believe that God can change your impossible situation in your parent-child relationships? Could your father, who's never been a believer, could he come to faith? Could your daughter, who's running after all of the wrong things in life, could she run after Christ instead? Could your little baby, could you raise him to love and follow God and work in his kingdom? I don't know what God is going to do in your impossible situation, but uh, look, look what he did for Nehemiah. And it's because he prayed fervently, watched for opportunities, and kept at it when the going got tough. I mean, look, uh, at the beginning of this book, you've got an impossible situation. You've got broken walls, burned gates, uh, but at the end, you have a rebuilt wall. God, God did that through Nehemiah. So, Uh, Let's talk about what following this example might look like in your own life. Uh, First of all, I'd just like to say that sometimes your situation might not line up perfectly with this template. Sometimes it might, sometimes it might not. For instance, let me take you back to the story of young Anthony holding his baby, uh, knowing that a father should feel unconditional love, but not not being able to get there himself. Um, So... Let me tell you, William is almost 14 now, and uh, when I cradle him in my arms now, like I do so often, you know, uh, I feel unconditional love. Uh, And gosh, I I couldn't not take the opportunity to embarrass my teen just a little bit. Chris, I don't know how you do it every week without uh, abusing that power. All right. So, uh, but, but but I feel it now. So how did I get there? Uh, Well, I'm going to tell you the honest truth. I don't remember praying about it. I don't remember, uh, you know, taking it to God necessarily. I mean, there have been lots of times when I have uh, cried out to God, prayed fervently as a parent, but I don't remember this being one of them. But what I did do 
was, uh, look, I took every opportunity I could get with William. Um, I changed his diapers. I walked the floor with him at night when he was fussy. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I played with him when he wasn't really able to be played with. Uh, I just uh, tried to get on at the ground floor and just do everything I possibly could. Um, and one day, didn't happen all at once, uh, wasn't like a clap of thunder or anything like that, but uh, I, I realized, hey, I did feel unconditional love for him. And what's more, we'd been spending all this time together, so we had a relationship. So uh, let's, m- my guess is uh, that God has already brought your impossible situation to mind. So let's, let's talk about some steps that maybe, maybe you could take to, uh, that, that you could take, that you could commit to, Maybe just following Nehemiah's example in one way this week. So maybe you could start by setting aside a few minutes every morning to pray about it. Uh, Maybe you could skip lunch uh, once this week instead of eating. Devote that time to prayer instead. You're not going on a hunger strike or anything to get God's attention. You're just uh, expressing that this situation, this person, means more to you than food. Um, what if you, uh, uh, as you've been sitting there, God's uh, brought to mind an opportunity that maybe you didn't have the courage to take at the time? What if you made that call or scheduled that uh, date for coffee? What if you just uh, had that conversation that you shrugged off at the time? Uh, finally, maybe there's something in your relationships that's just, that's just hard right now. You've been at it a long time, and you're just tired. What if this week you committed to... Keeping at it with a renewed focus. What if, like Nehemiah, you prayed, now strengthen my hands? So, once you've decided about that, let me just encourage you to share that commitment with someone. If you're in a growth group, share it with your group. Write it on the back of your connection card so we can join you in prayer. Tell your spouse. Heck, you could come up to me after the service, tell me about it. Uh, just, I just know how easy it is to... to come in here and you're hearing a, hearing a sermon, you're like, you know what, I should do that. I should absolutely do that. And then you walk out of here and you never remember it again. So it helps if you tell somebody. Uh, they can help you remember and it makes it just a little more real for you as well. So I'm going to give us some time to pray about our individual situations right now. And like I said earlier, I know sometimes we can be reluctant to pray about uh, our impossible situation. Uh, So we'll just do it right now together. Uh, Let's take these next few minutes to silently just cry out to God about it. Now, we're a Baptist church, so we're not going to do any crying out loud, you know? There won't be any of that, but just between you and God, uh, take some time, talk talk to to him about it, and then uh, after, after some time, I'll close this in prayer. So let's bow our heads, let's do that now.
God, I just want to lift all of our situations up to you right now. I know that uh, you've just given us great responsibility as parents and as children. And, um, you know, God, I don't know. I don't know about everybody else, but I know that sometimes I don't feel up for that responsibility that you've given me. Um, and, I, and I need your help. So, God, I just pray that, um, first of all, that I would be faithful, faithful in prayer. My hope comes from you. It doesn't, uh, doesn't come from my own strength. It doesn't come from my own abilities. It comes from you. And uh, so I just pray uh, that, that I would be able to trust you, that we would be able to trust you. Uh, God, I know that there are I know that there are impossible situations in here right now, you know, whether it be with children, whether it be with parents. Um, God, and I just lift those up to you right now and uh, pray that, that you would come into them in a real way, just like you did with Nehemiah, um, that we would be able to look back someday and uh, see those broken down walls and burned gates in our relationship with uh, in those relationships, and then we'd be able to look and see those see those walls restored, and uh, we pray these things in your name, Amen.